All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson. And with me today from his dungeon cave is Marty Frederick. Marty, how's it going in the dungeon, bro? It's going sweet. I'm, I'm in a, I'm in like once again in an undisclosed location uh, <laughs> uh, than, I, than where I normally record. So typically, as funny as it sounds, I typically record in my dad's bedroom nice. <laughs> because it's, it's the closest... It, it's the it's the quietest room. In the house is that gets the best internet signal. We live kind of out in the country, so we don't get very good internet. Um, but um, recently, I've been working a job that makes me work five days a week, and um, so I've been looking. I've also build guitar pedals with a friend, and so um, basically, I uh, am kind of doing my thing today working somewhere else and then like doing what i can so nice man well that's what's up i uh again i have no uh you know pre- uh, experience with building guitar pedals <laughs> well, <laughs> so it's about, not it's not something i could speak intelligently to about three months ago i would have said the exact same thing i would have been like yo like I don't actually know what I'm doing, but my buddy was like, no, you'll be fine. I'll teach you. You'll, you'll get it pretty much right away. <laughs> you'll have no problem with it. So I did. Um, and, and he was right. It's, you know, it's hard, but you know, it's, it's more just like, you know, minute pieces at a time, figuring out how to do it. And uh, it's super rewarding. Cause like you make the pedal uh, and his pedals are really popular. And so like we, we make one and then when we put them up for sale, we'll, generally gen, gen, generally put five to ten up for sale at a time and they'll just all sell within a couple hours nice uh, so it's it's rewarding because you're like you do the work and then like it's not like a, oh well i worked for days on those pedals and no one bought them and you know like they're just sitting there waiting to like they just sell like right away so uh rewarding helping people make music uh which is something that i love so it's like a it's like a both and awesome thing sweet so, yeah. man yeah, well, that, that's what's up, dude. Well, so I have uh, something that's kind of exciting. All right. So we had a guest a while ago who became our first ever repeat, like second time guest. And so 
that person is actually back today and they're going to be our, our first ever third time guest. And so I think what that means is when Rethinking Faith makes a Hall of Fame, this person is going to be our first inductee into the Rethinking Faith Hall of Fame. What do you think? No doubt. I'm, I'm, and that, but, but I think this person, for their second time, I wasn't here. So I, get, I think I get to ask them the, the second time question. Uh, uh, I think we asked, we asked Rob Dalrymple this question a couple months ago, uh, and it totally stumped him. His daughter had to help him, if you remember. So I'll, That's true. I'll ask, I'll ask when, when, once we introduce him. All right. Well, how about I'll introduce him then? It'll be All as right. simple as that. All right. So with us today is Dr. Thomas J. Ord. Tom, how's it going, man? Doing well, and I'm honored to be the first third-time guest, and um, this might be the, the only time I can use a hockey term by saying I've got the hat trick here. Nice. Uh, nice. Well done. Way to go. Way to go. <laughs> well to done. Go. That's definitely going on your plaque in the Hall of Fame. That was well done. <laughs> Sweet. Well, yeah, just so before uh, Marty asks you his question, I just want to give listeners a heads up. So Tom, like I said, has been on uh, twice before. And if you haven't listened to the conversations uh, with Tom that we've had before, it would probably be really helpful if you paused right now, went back and listened to them. One of them is called The Uncontrolling Love of God, and the other one is called God Can't. Um, you don't need to do that, but it will make this conversation much more uh, enjoyable and understandable for you. So uh if you want to check those out, great. If not, Marty, uh, fire away, man. Yeah, so so Tom, I guess this is our second time guest question, but I didn't get to ask it. So um, I guess we have to come up with a third time guest question. At this <laughs> oh, I have one. I have one okay. I can ask. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'll do my second time one. You can do your third time one, maybe. Um, <laughs> Tom, who is your favorite musical guest that you or musical artist that you've seen live? Uh, that's pretty easy for me. Um, seeing Bono in Seattle a few years ago in the U2 concert was, um, that was my favorite show. It was, you know, I've been to a lot of concerts and I've liked U2 for a lot, for a long time, but I'd not been to a U2 concert and my wife as a birthday present got tickets and, um, yeah, I, I nearly cried. Oh, nice. That's so cool. <laughs> that's awesome. Cool. Well, here, I'll throw one more question your way, Tom, uh, before we jump into some of, of our, uh, our content. Um, so what book, what new book or books, plural, are you most excited about in the realm of open and relational theology? Well, uh, Chip Fuller has a new book out on Christology called Divine Self-Investment. And um, it is the first in a new series of academic books in open relational theology. And so I'm pretty excited about that one. Nice. Yeah, that's what's up. That actually, uh, if my tracking is correct, that will be in my mailbox at some point today. So I'm quite oh, excited good. for that as well. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you again, Tom, for, for coming on and uh, hanging out with us. Um, and so today we're going to kind of continue a conversation uh, or continue the conversation that we've been having. Um, so we're going to be talking about, you, you wrote a book uh, not too long ago called God Can't. And then you recently put out like a Q&A uh, book called God Can't Q&A, Question and Answers for God Can't. And uh, I thought it was a super helpful book. You basically took uh, a whole bunch of questions that you have 
received and fielded and kind of put them into eight, you know, separate questions and attacked, you know, or, or answered um, all eight of them in the book. And so I thought it was uh, super helpful that you did that. And so today that's what we're going to talk about, but just as like a, a quick um, refresher or overview, can I give a shot at explaining um, your basic thesis, just in case someone didn't go back and listen, and then you can add whatever I miss. Yeah, it's a great plan. Okay, cool. So if I understand Dr. Thomas J. Ward correctly, uh, basically the argument goes something like this. Uh, God is essentially loving. God's love comes first logically within all of God's attributes. And because God is loving and is loving all things at all times, constantly, uh, you know, at maximum effort possible, uh, there are things that God simply can't do because his nature uh, prevents God from doing those things. Specifically, uh, God is non-coercive because love is uh, non-coercive. And so because of that, uh, there are things that God simply can't do by God's self, uh, specifically uh, and with regards to the problem of evil, God is incapable of unilaterally preventing genuine evil uh, because of God's nature of essential love. Short version of Thomas J. Ord. How that's do? beautiful. Yeah, that's excellent. <laughs> I'm impressed. Josh, oh, is nice. like, Josh is like, a, he sits around and just studies you, Tom. Like, <laughs> like, he, he was like, I, I just like... Everyone has a role model, and I think you are his role model. <laughs> well, he did a really nice job of summarizing, so I'm impressed. Awesome. Cool. Well, yeah, I think that's that's a fair claim to make, Marty. <laughs> Tom, Tom is awesome. He was my introduction into open and relational theology, and I love wrestling with and, and thinking through um, your work, Tom. So, Josh, absolutely. I feel like there's I feel like there's worse individuals that could be a role model. So like, <laughs> like you, you <laughs> like you, <laughs> for sure. So like, I don't think anyone would fault you for like, you know, going after somebody as quality as Tom. So that's true. Just being that's honest. fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. All right, Tom, was there you know, any, anything that I missed that you want to throw in there? Uh, you know, I could say lots and lots of things, but you got the, the main issues. Uh, but I should say, but I don't know why I haven't mentioned this before, but you should, uh, Add your name and your face, et cetera, to the uh, Center for Open Relational Theology. Okay. Is that a thing that's possible to do? Definitely. Yeah. Cool. I'll send you the info. And actually, if anybody's listening, Marty, you can as well. Anybody listening to this podcast who considers themselves open and relational, um, you're feel free to add your, your face and name to the Center for Open and Relational Theology. It's a nice way to see what other people are doing and network and that kind of thing that kind of thing. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'll be sure to do that. Yeah. Sweet. All right. Well then, um, before we, we look at the, the first question, uh, from, you know, that we want to talk about from your book, we're not going to hit all of them, uh, because obviously people should, should purchase the book to read it. Uh, and we don't have, you know, all day. Um, <laughs> but I think something that might be really helpful, um, that at least I have found in my experience thus far um, especially when it comes to talking about topics like this, is can we kind of get on the same page as to like what we mean when we're talking about God? Because some people, 
you know, picture God like the family guy version of God, like a dude in white robes with a beard who sits <laughs> up in the clouds. You know, some people think God is the ground of being. Some people think God is just this energy of love. Like when, when we're talking about God today, what are we talking about? Well, what I'm talking about, at least, uh, I believe in an actual God who is personal. And by personal, I mean engages in giving and receiving. I don't think God has a, a body somewhere with white robes. I think God is a universal spirit. Um, and this God is influencing everyone and everything at all times. So it's not God out somewhere in the universe looking down at us and watching us and wondering what's going on. This is a God who experiences life moment by moment, some way analogous to way, the way we experience, which means that God uh, experiences time. The future is a real future for God. The past is really the past for God, just like it is for us. This God is holy. This God is powerful. This God is loving. This God knows everything that's cap uh, possible for God to know, but that doesn't include knowing the future because that's impossible inherently. Um, God created. What are the other sort of attributes I will need to make sure I emphasize? Anything in particular you guys are thinking of that I've missed? Uh no, I don't think so. I think that that's pretty good just to get a, a general overview. So we're all, you know, kind of on the same page. Great. I'd agree. Um, so I guess to kind of kick things off, Tom, uh, as we look at the, the book, one of the questions we wanted to focus on, um, and out of the, we have these four questions from the book and then two listener questions. But the first one is, um, so if God is uncontrolling and in fact cannot control, then what is the point of praying? Yeah, you know, I, I get this question a lot, and it's the first one I deal with in the book. And I, I was thinking today as I was exercising that, like, really the question ought to be the opposite. If God can control others, then why should you pray? And rather than, you know, the question to me is, well, your God can't control, so why should I pray? But really, if God could control, why would we want to pray? I mean, if this God can do whatever God wants to do, is perfectly loving, is a whole lot smarter than you and I, then uh, why would we need to pray? Why is God the kind of being who sits back and says, you know, unless you really work hard enough, I'm not going to do anything that will benefit you? I don't think that's the way we want to go. That's not the kind of loving parent, I think, that we uh, see in our, our own worlds. If a parent uh, doesn't rescue a kid from dying when the parent could rescue them, we don't think that parent is loving. Um, so why pray? Well, I think if God can't control, then prayer actually makes a whole lot more sense than if God could control. Because if God can't control, perhaps our prayers actually make a difference to God in the world such that there are new possibilities for God, new avenues. I like to put it like this. God is relational. Our prayers have an influence on God. The world is relational. Our actions have an influence on the world. So if prayer is an action, then our prayer in one moment influences God and the world and changes things such that God has new possibilities, new options, new opportunities to act in the next moment in light 
of what we have done in the previous moment. Hmm. Yeah, I think, so I really like that because it, it kind of, um, I mean, obviously the, the relational bit is one of the, the big things I'm attracted to within open and relational theology that we can have this relationship and obviously relationships are give and take. And so we can see, um, you know, within that, that uh, uncontrolling view, the prayer is actually um, part of relationship because I think like you rightly pointed out, if, if God controls everything as in like the, the um, meticulous providence kind of idea that every last thing that happens is ordained and, and caused by God, then praying seems kind of pointless. Right. <laughs> because like what, you know, everything's already planned and set. So why does it matter? Exactly. Yep. And then yep. the, the other one, which, so that you pointed out and this had never occurred to me, but the idea of, of, you know, the more, uh, I guess, um, typical way people think about prayer, like, you know, if we pray or we get a prayer chain and enough people pray, then maybe God will do this thing. Um, it kind of paints this picture of a God that is, you know, kind of very standoffish and set some kind of like arbitrary number, like, okay, well, if I get 6,742 prayers, then <laughs> maybe I'll consider doing something but, like that doesn't seem to be the kind of God that we experience or find in scripture. Exactly. Yeah. That's my big worry. Um, you know, if God can't control, which is my view, then our actions do make a difference. And so then actually, you know, this is, this may sound really strange to some of your, your listeners, but prayer chains actually make sense if God is uncontrolling because prayer chains mean that there are more people invested and acting in the world. And in my view, that gives God more options. It changes the world in new kinds of ways. And so um, prayer chains make sense in an uncontrolling uh, model in a way that they don't in the traditional views of God. And so is that kind of because like the idea would be that, um, you know, God is, is constantly working always uh, to yep. bring about, you know, the most love and good in all situations. And when we pray and we align ourselves with God, then because we're aligning ourselves with God, God's realm of possibilities increases. Is that, am I understanding correctly? That's a major part of it, but it's more than just our aligning ourselves with God. Um, you know, it's funny. I, before the pandemic, I did a lot of traveling and speaking and, and I'm happy to say that I spoke in both uh, places that are, some are very conservative and others are more progressive. And in conservative kinds of settings, when they talk about prayer, it's mostly about asking God to fix things in our lives or in the world. And um, when I'm in progressive places, most progressive Christians don't pray that kind of prayer. They pray more of a, you know, God fix me kind of a thing. Um, you know, my prayers are going to not change God. They're going to change me. My view says, yeah, my prayers are going to affect me. They're going to affect God, but they're also going to affect the world beyond me. And so it's not just me aligning myself with God so that my life can get straightened out, which I'm totally on board with. It's also that if we live in an interrelated universe, my actions toward myself and toward others really make a difference beyond myself. Again, they don't make it the case that God can be controlling, but they do make it the case that God can work in new ways because the world is different moment by moment. Okay. So like would, 
and maybe this is getting too deep into the, the weeds, so we don't, we don't have to sit here, but does this, like something like quantum entanglement theory, um, those kind of things, is this, does this play into the understanding of prayer? Quantum entanglement, chaos theory, all that stuff fits very nicely with my model. Okay. Just so long as you don't think quantum entanglement or, you know, uh, involves some kind of determinism. Um, which very few people think that. So that's sure. not a big worry. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah. So, so I, Tom, I'm listening to everything you're saying and you know, it all is making sense to me. So I guess, I guess the, the natural progression of question is to say, you know, what's, what's the healthy way to pray? Uh, you gave an example in the book about praying for someone with COVID-19. Um, but, but also just like, it, it's sort of like, you know, if we're, what what does it look like to pray for someone in a healthy way within what you discuss? Yeah, I think there's a lot of elements and dimensions of it. Some of it is involves expressing our uh, belief in God's love for us, belief in God's action in the world. Some of it, sometimes we pray most because we just want to get things off our chest. You know, the apostle Paul says, you know, when, when you pray, uh, present your request to God, the God of comfort uh, will comfort you. So sometimes we do that just to sort of get things off our chest. But if we're praying for, let's say, someone who has uh, an illness, then I think our prayers, at least for me, I'm trying to be very careful about the words I use. I want to talk about God's real action in the situation, in the person who's sick, in the world, and believing that um, my cooperation, which I oftentimes commit in a prayer uh, of petition, uh, will make a difference. But I want to avoid giving the impression that somehow if I prayed for it, now God can single-handedly you know, fix things. So when I pray, I'll sometimes even remind myself or the person I'm praying with that God is active in the world, loving at all times, all places, already working to heal to the extent possible. But God always faces uh, agents that may or may not cooperate or factors that may or may not be conducive to the kind of healing God wants to do. And so sometimes in my prayer out loud, I'll say that kind of thing to remind myself and others who may be listening to my prayer that God is active, but not the only agent or only factor in a situation. Yeah, I so I that like section where you break down that, you know, you give a very practical, like here's, you know, line by line prayer that that might uh, be helpful. I actually, um, I have a, a student of mine um, who luckily now she's been found and everything's okay, but she ran away from home. Um, and it was a it was a big crisis. It was a difficult thing. She was missing. The police were looking for her, all sorts of stuff. And one of my uh, leaders had the idea to do a prayer gathering. I was like, okay, great. Um, you know, since it was your idea, you lead it. I want to empower you to do that, and I'll come and support. And so I actually tried to pray using <laughs> the model that you put forth in your book because I read that chapter the same day of that prayer that prayer gathering, and like I actually genuinely enjoyed the experience of praying the way that you laid out in the book, because it was so well-rounded and helpful. And also the piece, there's a piece in there where you talk about committing to cooperating with God and then yeah. asking God, you know, to, to help us do what we need to do. 
I think a lot of times, and I don't want this to come off as overly critical, but a lot of times we can say, okay, well, I'm praying for you. You know, dear God, please heal my friend. Amen. And then we kind of leave it at that. Yeah. Um, but the commitment piece like ties us to the person that we're praying for in such like a relational and meaningful way that I find it to just be so helpful. And I actually, I really enjoyed praying in the way that you put forth. So thank you for sharing. Mm, I'm happy to hear that. You know, I, I think that praying is really important for a number of reasons, but one of them, at least for me personally, is it's a way to try to actually work out the theology that I think makes sense. <laughs> um, and I don't know about you guys, but um, I've been praying since I was a kid and I've got some habits, some phrases that will come to my mind when I'm in a praying situation, especially like in a public situation. And some of those habits, those phrases, those cliches are things I don't believe, but there's so much a part of my upbringing and my past uh, they, I, they have a hard time uh, not having them come out in my prayers. So sure. I'm, I'm, I'm often wrestling in the moment, if it's a spontane spontaneous prayer, which in my tradition is the most common kind of prayer, not a written out prayer. But if it's spontaneous, then in the moment, I'm trying to very carefully say the kind of words that I actually believe, not only for myself, but I'm hoping, hopeful that it's helpful for other people who are listening to my prayer to have an appropriate kind of hope in the situation. Yeah, most definitely. I think <laughs> that's so interesting because I, I find myself doing the same thing. And I also find myself doing the same thing in like, uh, like preaching or, or speaking with students or even, mm -hmm. you know, preaching to the congregation at large, just because, uh, and this is a complete, you know, um, side issue, but uh, it's, I just think it's interesting. Like there are things that I personally believe or have been wrestling with that like, if I were to introduce that to my students or the congregation at this time, there's people who that genuinely would not be helpful for. Yeah, so like yeah. trying to walk that line is always interesting. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. That's part of being loving is to try to discern what kind of language is going to help people and also be honest with what you really believe. Yeah, most, most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. So uh, moving on to question number two, Tom. Um, so uh, this question, Question, uh, I want to preface, uh, I guess, by saying that I think maybe it's a little tongue-in-cheek, so just be forgiving. <laughs> um, so but, so I'm going to ask it that way just for the sake of being funny. Um, so, I mean, Tom, if God is uncontrolling, does that mean you just don't believe in miracles at all? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there are some people who don't believe in miracles because they don't think God is controlling. And, yeah. And uh, so it's not a stupid question at all. Um, I do believe in miracles. I uh, want to have a, uh, what's the right word? Uh, a believable uh, understanding or account of miracles because the kinds of ways I've heard people talk about God doing miracles just don't make a lot of sense to me. They set people up for false uh, expectations. They end up making claims about God having mysterious plans that involve people dying from cancer or, you know, getting raped. And that makes no sense to me at all. And yet sometimes miraculous events occur, people are rescued or people overcome cancer. And so, you know, do I want to say, well, that's just a fluke, you know, uh, just like 
accidents happen in the world that end up making things worse. Every once in a while, an accident can make things better. God didn't have anything to do with it. No, I'm not in that camp. So I think miracles occur because God always, in all times and places, at all levels of reality, is active, active to bring about good, to uh, call creatures of whatever complexity to cooperate with whatever is good, given what's possible in any situation. And even amongst the inanimate levels of creation, down to the rocks and the water and whatever, I think God is active there, uh, trying to bring the best in response to uh, creatures or entities that don't have responsive capacities. So when miracles occur, I think we can credit God, but we also have to believe that there was some kind of uh, cooperation amongst agents who have responsive power, or the uh, amongst inanimate objects, the uh, conditions of creation were aligned or conducive for the kind of miracle that occurred. This, I think, is really helpful to understand why uh, miracles don't occur a whole lot more often uh, than we sometimes wish they would, because then we don't have to say, well, you know, you know, her sexual abuse was just a part of God's plan. We can say, no, God wanted to stop that. God wanted to heal that guy from cancer, but uh, the, either the conditions of creation were not conducive for that healing. There wasn't cooperation, uh, maybe at the cellular level or societal level or whatever level. Uh, so we don't have to blame God when miracles don't occur. Yeah. So like, I think, one question that I know this seems to, you know, this idea kind of seems to beg, and I think also it could tie into the prayer question as well. Um, and I also, I think it's a common critique of some of the um, like prosperity kind of movement kind of stuff. So maybe you kind of <laughs> already could see where I'm going with this, but some people would say, okay, Tom, well, if that's true, then is what you're saying that it's the victim's fault that if somebody has cancer and they pray to be healed and they're not healed. It's because they didn't believe enough. They didn't cooperate with God. They didn't, you know, whatever. And so I know you have a good answer to this question, but again, tongue in cheek, I know people are thinking it. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important question because a lot of people have been hurt by this, the whole blame the victim issue. I'm not saying that we should blame the victim. It may be in a rare situation that it really is the person's fault for their problems. You know, maybe, um, maybe someone is dealing with night terrors and can't sleep because of bad dreams, but they're watching horror movies before they go to bed every night. Then you say, okay, come on now. You know, you need to cooperate with God here if we're going to overcome this. But the vast majority of situations, let's take a cancer situation, it's not that the person didn't have enough faith that we shouldn't blame them uh, for, you know, not trying hard enough. Instead, I think that sometimes, often, in fact, people have plenty of faith. They're cooperating with God. It's not their fault. And yet their bodies, their organs, their cells aren't cooperating or can't cooperate with the kind of uh, healing God wants to do. So, I'm against blaming the victim in 99.9% .9 of cases. You know, again, every once in a while, yeah, it is. Our problems are self-caused. But most of the time, people who are trying to get well, it's not their fault. 
And it's not because they don't have enough faith. Rather, the conditions of their bodies are just not conducive to the healing that God wants to do. Mm. Yeah, okay. and, you know, uh, and, and all that, you know, I, I see where you're coming from, too. And, you know, so I've attended um, in the past churches that would have uh, called themselves charismatic, uh, believing in miracles and those types of things. Um, but in each one of those places that I've been a part of, um, in fact, I was, I was sort of like a volunteer leader at one of these places. It was a church plant. And um, the pastor used to tell us at the end of the service when you're up front and we have sort of an altar call or a moment where we're praying with people, um, don't ever in that moment, you know, in a prayer with that person that they say, oh, you know, my back is hurting. Don't ever be the person that says, I command in Jesus' name that that this back pain is completely gone. And he said, and the reason I, I don't want you to ever do that is because what happens if it doesn't happen and then that person leaves and their back pain is still there? Um, right. Or maybe it goes away for a few minutes and it's, you know, he said, to be honest, it could be some sort of placebo effect where like they genuinely believe that they were healed in that moment. But then they come back 10 minutes later, they, on, they're on the walk to the car and they're feeling great. And then their back starts to hurt again <laughs> or, yes. or they twist their body wrong and their back hurts still. And they realize, well, maybe it was just something that I did, you know? Or, and so, but he's said, you know, what does that say about God in those moments? If to this person, what does that communicate about God to this person that it, he said, essentially it communicates that God can do anything, but for some reason he chose not to, in your specific yeah. case, or God, God really can't actually heal you, but you're going to hear us talk about healing and all that kind of stuff all Sunday morning, you know, and you're going to see all these different prosperity type people say all these things, but then, you know, so essentially what you're communicating is God's going to do it, but maybe just not for you. <laughs> <laughs> so like, it was, it was one of those things where like, you know, he just said, you know, there are ways to pray for somebody and ways to uh, encourage somebody, not necessarily in a way where you're just like commanding God to do something. He, he pointed out how there's really only one situation in all of scripture where a human commanded God to do something and then God listened. And yeah. usually it didn't work that way. Um, and so it was always interesting to me. And I've, you know, being a part of these charismatic circles, I've been to events. Um, and I was recently at one uh, near me and there was a guy there, you know, and he was healing people and he was doing the whole, you know, touch their forehead and then they would fall to the ground. Yeah. Um, and they're instantly healed. But, you know, part of me really wanted to like, you know, someone needs to follow each, all 15 of these people around for the next week. There have and, been people that done, there have been those kinds of studies done. Yeah. And, and, and you wonder like for each one of these individuals, was there legitimate complete cellular biological you know case by case actual healing that occurred or was it placebo or or what was it in those moments because i think there are people that legitimately have those moments and it really actually something really happens in those moments and yeah. so i guess healing has always been an interesting thing to me because i've been a part of those circles um, and I'm currently a part of a church that is, you know, definitely on the charismatic side. Um, and so how, how does, how does that fit in? I guess that's a long winded way of asking, like, how does that all fit in? Um, you know, with the guy that says, don't pray for those kinds of things. Cause you don't want to communicate the wrong thing about God, but you know, but then there are situations where that really does happen, you know, like the, 
the cancer is just gone and they can't explain it other than, you know, something happened. Like, how does that all fit in? Yes. So in this newer book, I have that chapter on healing. And in God Can't, I have a whole chapter on healing where I try to work through all of those particular issues. I I begin my answer with that because I'm sure there's some elements that I'm not going (laughs) to say in response here. But um, what I want to say is that God really does want to heal. So I go to progressive churches in which, you know, there's no often no real mention of healing or, you know, people will tag on this little line that says, if it's your will, you know, uh, God heal Aunt Mabel's cancer, if it's your will, which is basically just a kind of a cover your butt kind of phrase that if she doesn't get healed, then, you know, it must not have been God's will. I want to say we should be talking about God as a healer and that whenever people are healed, whether it's through traditional medicine, alternative medicine, uh, instantaneous things, progressive things, processual things, that God is always the source of the healing. But because God can't single-handedly ever heal anyone or anything, there's always some kind of uh, other factors that play a role, either in that are positive, a positive role or a negative role. Um, so I guess I would want to say to, I would want to uh, thank your pastor for being cautious about the kind of language uh, that's used in those scenarios, but then also try to search for language that's clear that can both affirm God as a healer, but also uh, acknowledge other factors and actors that are involved in every situation from the most complex to the least. Mm. So you will thank, uh, thanks for that explanation, Tom. And just one, one more quick question <clears throat> on this, uh, on this topic. That is one that often, actually we have a listener question from this person later on in the episode, but something, uh, when I talk to him about, uh, this kind of idea often comes up. He's like, well, if, if God is, you know, God, <laughs> then God, obviously, then God obviously would be able to, uh, influence human beings, uh, in such a way that they carry out the will of God always because he's God and it would be non-coercive. And so basically if only God tried harder, then everybody would listen. So like, what do you think about that? I feel like that fits into yeah. this conversation as well. It does. Uh, sometimes uh, people get the idea that my view of God being uncontrolling is that God could control but is really working at about 73% of maximal capacity. And uh, God could go 100% and control some sort of thing, but in, you know, out of love and giving freedom to others, God's really going to only go 73%. If that's the view you have, then the question you just asked makes a lot of sense. Then the question is, well, why doesn't God bump 73 up to 79%? and be a little more effective, or maybe up to 89, there'd still be 11% of freedom in the world. You know, you can see how that kind of logic goes. My view is that God always acts at 100%. God isn't uh, pulling any punches, we might say, but God's 100% is always uncontrolling. So God can't try harder, we might say, because God's always going full throttle. But full throttle is never controlling. So 
the the maximal amount of influence God can exert in any particular moment, God is doing it. What varies is how well we respond or how well creation responds in any particular moment. That's the variable aspect. Sure. Sweet. Well, thanks. So um, the next question actually, so this question, the miracle one used to be what I got hung up the most on uh, when wrestling with your ideas. And, and maybe you remember from our, our past conversations, um, I shared that with you. And now actually the next question I want to ask is really the one that <laughs> I get Good. hung up. I get hung <laughs> up on now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think you gave a really sufficient, uh, you know, um, answer in your book, but also I have some questions about it as well. So the, the overall question though is, what hope do we have if God's love is uncontrolling? Yeah, most people when they think about hope, they think about their personal hope, like for the afterlife. We could talk about the collective hope for the planet, or we could talk about specific hopes for you know, ideas or projects. Um, so there's a lot of directions to go here. I think we have genuine hope insofar that God never gives up and always calls everyone at all time, whether in this body or in the next life, to a life of love. And that's where our hope is fundamentally grounded. Um, as you know from, from reading the book and, and also just in general, I don't think our hope is ever should be based on a controlling view of God or a controlling God because if that's our hope, then we've got lots of unanswered questions for the present and future. Yeah. And so I think what's interesting is, so I, so within the book, you kind of, you talk about the, the, the personal, like the afterlife bit. And so I want to hit on that real quick and then I want to zoom out and go bigger than that. So, okay. Yeah. So you talk about in the book, how there's these three kind of uh, views floating around out there. Um, that actually our listeners will be familiar with within the realm of possibilities, so to speak, for the afterlife. Eternal conscious torment, which is probably what uh, most people, at least if you grew up in Western Protestant faith, um, you might be familiar with, which is, you know, God tortures people in hell forever. Uh, there's annihilation, which uh, people like Chris Date have uh, made pretty popular. Uh, he's done some really great work around it, which basically is the idea of uh, conditional immortality that uh eternal life is only gifted to those who self-appropriate christ however you want to you know make that happen and if you don't do that then poof you're gone oblivion no longer exists and then there's universalism somehow at the end of the day all people are saved and you kind of uh point out issues in all three of these and i think that's super interesting so can we talk about that a little bit yeah, the issue with the eternal conscious torment, the traditional heaven and hell idea, I mean, a lot of people have pointed out the problems here. It just doesn't seem to match the idea of a perfectly loving God sending people to eternal conscious torment for, let's say, 85 years of sin. It just The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Right. right. Um, plus, there's just not very strong biblical support for that idea, even though it's really popular. You know, I'm not the first one to say that. The annihilationist one then is a sort of a response to the problem of thinking that God will send people to eternal conscious torment. And they'll pull passages from scripture that talk about fire or, you know, something like that, or the death. And their view is that uh, God doesn't send people to eternal 
self-conscious torment, but God annihilates them, or this is sometimes called conditionalism. My problem with annihilation is that it either God either passively or actively destroys people, and I think it means that God gives up on people. I think it goes against the idea of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, I think it's verse 7, that you know, love never gives up. It always hopes. Um, and I like the idea of that a God of love wouldn't say, you know, I've just, Josh is, I've given him like 300,000 chances to say yes to me. I'm not going to give him 300,001. There's, there's just a limit. Ah, bummer, dude. Say, <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of a God who never gives up because love is truly steadfast, everlasting, like the psalmist says. So um, the idea of universalism obviously is attractive to a lot of people because that's a God who doesn't send anybody to hell or annihilate anybody. And eventually everybody gets to heaven, all the all income free, basically. The problem with at least the traditional views of a, a universalism, and this in, includes David Bentley Hart's version as well, is that it ends up undermining our view of freedom because it ends up saying that God unilaterally or at least ends up uh, creates people that they will eventually all get to heaven. And that means that there are some people who go to heaven who don't want to be there, or we really didn't have freedom not to go in the first place. And it creates all kinds of problems with taking this life seriously. So if you believe that everyone goes to heaven at the end, no matter what they do, then it's really hard for me to take, you know, let's say climate change seriously. Like, why would I want to self-sacrifice right now in order to help other species live and the planet get better if I know that, you know, I'm going to spend absolute everlasting eternity in heaven no matter what I do? Um, you know, you might say, well, if you're a good person, you would want to alleviate suffering for those now who are dealing with the uh, effects of climate change. But I would just say, well, they're going to heaven too. So what does it really matter? We're all going to end up, you know, enjoying eternal bliss. So there's all kinds of problems with the traditional view of universalism. I could cite others, but I'll stop there. My view says this, um, God never gives up. God always calls, always invites to loving relationship in this life and the next. And if we say no, well, there are natural negative consequences to saying no to love. It's not that God is punishing us. There's just natural punishment that comes from saying no to love. But because God will never give up, I have the genuine hope that I and all creation will eventually say yes. So we might say I have the hope of universalism, but not the kind of guarantee that comes in some of the other uh, universalist theories. Sure. Yeah. That, so like, would you, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the works of uh, C.S. Lewis. So like the um, Great Divorce. Would yeah. that, would the great divorce, does that kind of fit? I feel like that fits well into your understanding, unless I'm missing something. It does fit pretty well. You know, I have different language. I call my view the relentless love view. Mm -hmm, I emphasize mm -hmm. the creaturely response. So, you know, there's, there's some differences, but I think in general, it fits very nicely. Also, one, so one last question on the whole, the personal aspect of things, because I know that there are people who think this as well. 
Um, and I think it's an interesting question to ask. Um, like basically <laughs> for this whole conversation that, that we just had within the realms of like eternal conscious torment, universalism, whatever it pre, I feel like there's some kind of, to an extent, a presupposition that going to heaven is the whole point of being a Christian. Um, mm. That's so I think that's an interesting <laughs> conversation that could be had, but do you have any thoughts on that just briefly? Yeah, I don't think the whole point of being a Christian is to go to heaven. I actually believe in heaven. I believe in the afterlife. But I'm with John Wesley here, the great uh, uh, theologian who says that salvation begins in this life. It continues mm. into the afterlife. Yeah. But God's goal is for us to have a good life here and now and all of creation to be uh, healed. Mm -hmm. Sweet. Okay, cool. And then... Um, just for like a, a personal Josh question, um, N.T. Wright is a scholar and theologian that kind of changed my life. Oddly enough, my quote deconstruction uh, actually started <laughs> by reading N.T. Wright, which I think is interesting. Um, <laughs> I read Surprised by Hope and it, it blew everything wide open for me. So I, I mean, I highly recommend that book. But for me, a major, major thing that I kind of hang my hat on, so to speak, is his language of the restoration or redemption of all things. And I know you're familiar mm. with, with his position. And so this actually, I'm not so concerned about the, the life after death thing. Um, I just kind of, I have opinions about it, but I've kind of been like, okay, I'm going to, you know, in faith, trust that when I die, uh, God's going to take care of that. That's kind of where I sit with that right now. Um, but the, the restoration or redemption of all things is I get nervous here because like for me so much of my hope in and my understanding of suffering and the kind of crazy things that go on in society in the world today is that at at some point the restoration and redemption of all things is going to happen so within an uncontrolling view is god capable of bringing about that ultimate restoration and redemption is that like a is it a possibility? Um, is it maybe something that like, I mean, I guess the way I see it could be working out is that like eventually it's, it's reasonable to think that everybody would kind of get on board and be like, yeah, okay. Like God is pretty great. And I want to be in relationship with God and then it could happen. Like what have you wrestled with that? What are, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's possible for the ultimate redemption of all things. You know, the apostle Paul talks about this uh, in Romans uh, and the, it's possible in the uncontrolling love of God view. Obviously it's not going to happen because God forces it. So that has to be some kind of cooperation, but let me go nerdy here for you just a second. Okay, Josh. I love um, it. It's interesting. <laughs> It's interesting, the Apostle Paul in uh, that Romans passage, when he talks about the redemption of all creation, has this line about creation groaning, waiting for, I don't remember the exact language here, but something about human cooperation. Somehow creation is dependent upon humans to get things right. And it's a, it's a strange bit of, of um, prose there, and scholars wrestle with how to best interpret it. But there seems to be a link between the redemption of all creation and human redemption. So um, one of the issues in philosophy of science has to do with uh, the question of what we call bottom-up or top-down causation. 
And that basic issue is whether or not uh, creatures who are more complex can actually alter the way less complex creatures uh, act. It seems like it's really obvious that you can. I mean, right now, again, if you go to climate change, it seems like humans are doing things that are negatively affecting at least some parts of reality, even uh, inanimate parts of reality. So um, one way to think about the ultimate redemption of all things, not just humans, not just other creatures, but even down to the smaller elements, is to talk about creatures who cooperate with God, then having some kind of top-down causal influence on other aspects of creation, whether or not they're other creatures or, you know, smaller agents, cells, whatever. So I can imagine a scenario in which the ultimate redemption of all things occur because creatures, especially humans, begin cooperating with God, and that has a, a causal avalanche kind of effect, or to use chaos theory, some kind of momentum that extends far beyond the influence at one particular moment, but affects creatures at a greater distance. Mm. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I want now. I have to go sit down and you know go take a walk in into the woods here at my house and contemplate that for a few hours. But I love it. Thank you, <laughs> yeah, th thank you for answering my my nerdy question with a uh, nerdy response. I love it. <laughs> I love listening. I love listening to you guys nerd out on because <laughs> it's you know like it's de I definitely think within a lot of these same realms. You know, I mean, I you know I I love theology, but sometimes Josh, Josh definitely always takes things like three levels further. And anytime we have a conversation about anything, he's like, "Oh yeah, like I totally think like I could totally see why you think that way." But what about this, 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 and this? And it always like takes me for a loop. Like he's always thought through everything. He's read ten books on the subject to my zero usually. Um, <laughs> um, Josh is Josh is right there. Um, so then I guess um, the fourth question from the book that we wanted to talk about. Um, so it, like we on this podcast, like our, um, our goal has always been to seek Jesus and everything. Um, no, no matter what it is, uh, you know, where's Jesus, like find Jesus in that. Um, and so I guess our, the question would be for us, um, Jesus, what role does Jesus play in the theology of an uncontrolling God? Yeah, you know, when I put this book together, which is called Questions and Answers for God Can't, I, I gleaned through lots of questions people ask me in, in, you know, chat rooms or in live lectures or wherever, and tried to pick out the ones that were the most common. But I added one question in this book, one chapter on a question in this book that I rarely get asked, and that's the Jesus question. <laughs> that's so that is, weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, I Christians think it's- Christians want to know about Jesus, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, in some ways it's understandable in that I think a lot of people will recognize that a God of uncontrolling love fits the Jesus model pretty well. You know, Jesus doesn't seem to be someone who is going around controlling everyone. Uh, we might have instances we have to explain, like Jesus clearing the temple, but the general vision of it, Jesus is someone who is a persuasive love. And so um, I think if we take that seriously, we ought to think God is persuasively loving. In other words, if Jesus gives us a clearest revelation of what God is like, 
then and Jesus is a you know uncontrolling lover, then maybe God is an uncontrolling lover. Of course, once you begin to go down that path, then I think you have to make some distinctions. Like Jesus is someone who lives at a particular time and place, has a body, can do things as an embodied individual that God, who I think is a universal spirit, may not be able to do. So there's some sort of nerdy technical kinds of things that we have to work out. But generally speaking, I think the vision or the revelation of Jesus Christ points very nicely to a God who loves everyone and everything, who's uncontrolling, who doesn't uh, coerce, and is leading creation to uh, well-being. Yeah, yeah I think- and I, I think with, within the realm of, of Jesus, I think oftentimes um, he gets separated from God in many conversations. <laughs> yes. Uh, and like, and obviously his, his, his role on earth as, as fully man, fully, fully God. Um, like it's, it's when, when you, when you kind of take a macro view, you like say, okay, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's God. He's, he's human. He's God. Like, you know, he's part of the Trinity, but I think a lot of times people take this viewpoint and they, they want to separate Jesus out from all of that. And they want to say, well, well, I I look at Jesus differently. Jesus is different. And I think we sometimes what we say for the sake of argument becomes how we walk around evening and like what we actually think about those types of things. And I I think a lot of times we miss the idea um, that, I mean, like the idea of the Trinity is Jesus is, is God. Jesus isn't separate. He's not, it's, it's, it's not his own thing. And Jesus essentially lived out that theology of who God is. Um, you know, I mean, like, it's like, that's, that's the idea. Like Jesus lived yeah, that out reminds, um, of what God's theology is. So uh, it's, it's hard to separate it, I guess. This reminds me of a student I once had who came up to me and he said, you know, I really like Jesus, but that God is a son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I think so many people can relate to that. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, and then there's, there's, there's even the quote like from Gandhi where he said, I, I really like your Jesus, but I I don't like your Christians. And I'm sure I just brutalized that quote of like exactly what he, what he legitimately said. But you know, I, I think there's, there's truth in that too is, you know, we, I think following Jesus seems like a really nice thing to say. It seems like a nice present with a nice gift wrapped bow, you know, everything. It's, it's easy to verbalize that, but I think then to do it, I think is different. Um, And and I think a lot of people miss, miss that angle. Um, So I don't know, Josh, did you have anything else before the listener questions? I I had, I had one thing, but I, I wanted to leave space for you within that, within that question from the book too. Yeah, so actually, I'm uh, well. I'm interested in what <laughs> what Tom wanted to say about his student there, but I think uh, it too, like just the idea, Tom. That so for me, like I have very uh, so my friend Bruxy, uh, Bruxy Cavey, You may uh, he's a, a pastor up up in Canada, but um, he uses the term Anabaptish with an sh on the end to describe people like myself, and so I'm Anabaptish, <laughs> and so. <laughs> I'm very, I'm extremely uh, Jesus centered. So I operate under a centered set approach to theology versus a bounded set. The center of my theology is the person of Jesus. And that stems out of the idea that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. If we want to know what God is like, look at the person of Jesus. If there's anything within scripture that doesn't look like Jesus, then perhaps something else is going on there. 
um, you know, I'm willing to say things that like people misunderstood God or got God wrong. Not everyone's able to go there, but that's my commitment to Jesus allows me to do that. And so I thought just one, I want to hear what your, your student had to say, but I think it ties into this idea of like, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. How does that play into your understanding here? Yeah. Um, you know, Anabaptists aren't the only ones who do that, but I think they do it better than some denominations because it's a central sort of focus for them. And so uh, they're to be credited for that. Hooray. Um, <laughs> Radical reformation. <laughs> uh, some people, of course, you know, worry that if we just focus on Jesus so much, we'll just dismiss all the rest of the scriptures. And I'm not saying we should do that. Right. I do think that we uh, ought to privilege Jesus and use that kind of as a hermeneutic. But, um, and that means, like you said, that sometimes I'm willing to say that some other passages of scripture just paint the wrong picture of God because I think it's more clearly painted in Jesus. Um, so I'm totally on board with what we might call a Christocentric hermeneutic. I do think, though, that we even there need to be careful about um, what we mean by having a Jesus-centered view of who God is. Like, you know, it's I am on board with saying Jesus tells us what God is like, but Jesus, again, had a, a localized body and lived in Nazareth. I think God is a universal spirit. So there's going to be some differences as well between Jesus and God. So if when I'm more careful, I'll say something like this. Jesus gives us a, an accurate picture of God's loving character. And that way I can say, you know, that God is a universal spirit and uh, not have to say that, you know, God also has a body that lives somewhere up in, you know, the, the heaven somewhere. Yeah, I think um, that's helpful. And I think too, like, I thought that distinction you made in the book was was really interesting where like, so Jesus is the ultimate revelation, but also like clearly Jesus didn't possess all the attributes of God. Like Jesus was right. a human being. Um, and I think too, this is where things like uh, the idea of like the universal Christ uh, kind of comes yeah. into play for me. You know, Richard Rohr uses that language and, and so do many others. Um, but just this idea that like the Christ is what has existed eternally. Like I think that's right. just good Trinitarian theology. And then, Jesus is the Christ incarnated in human form. And so clearly there's going to be limitations. And then that's where it gets into your idea of like uh, kenosis. And then you, you know, push that with the, the, the essential kenosis and, and things like that. So I thought that was a super helpful distinction. Uh, that you made yeah. Book. yeah. That's important. And I like that emphasis upon the universal Christ. You know, there's lots of theologians have done that throughout history uh, but Roar does it, I think, very nicely for, for our time. Um, let me mention one other thing. And just since I haven't said enough controversial things yet, let me say <laughs> controversial things. Do it. Drop it like it's <laughs> hot. <laughs> Another reason Jesus, we shouldn't say Jesus tells us everything about God is that God, I think, knows everything that's possible to know. And Jesus, you know, he likely didn't, he didn't know about evolution. Jesus said the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. It's clearly not. Jesus had a, a worldview of his time that I think included false beliefs. And um, I don't think God has false beliefs. So 
as much as I want to be a follower of Jesus and want to make claims that what we understand best about God's nature or character we see in Jesus Christ, I want to be also very careful not to say that Jesus exhibits all of the attributes. I think Christians or even non-Christians, Jews, Muslims, all the attributes we want to say God has. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, actually a very helpful distinction. And um, I have, I have a friend, uh, Dr. Jace Broadhurst. Uh, he's a mentor of mine. He's a PhD in old Testament, specifically biblical hermeneutics, uh, you know, studied uh, with the likes of Pete ends and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But uh, Jace likes to say that Jesus was a man of his time. And so yeah. I, I think that's a helpful distinction that you made. Yeah, that's good. Well, Tom, I think we've got to the end of the four questions from the book. Um, and so we have the two listener questions we wanted to talk about. Um, but I, I, um, I have a question uh, personally that I Great. wanted to, to throw in the mix. And I realized maybe this could have been in like the beginning of, the, of this episode, um, but I just didn't think about asking it. Um, so in your, in your time developing the ideas around that you have around open and relational theology, um, what have been some of the biggest hurdles and sort of like um, like ideas that people have and questions people have had about it that in your in your time personally wrestling through this um, yeah. what have what were the things that gave you like the biggest you know bars in the spokes of the bike or like the, the things that really took took you into the okay, well, well, I guess maybe that doesn't quite fit. Like, how do I, how do I rectify that in my mind? Like, what have been, what have been those questions that really challenged you the most in this? Yeah, I concept? think I'll talk about three and talk about them kind of in the order of my development. So um, when I was much younger, I was pretty committed to a God of perfect love. And I wanted to have a Bible that, um, clearly, consistently, and inherently uh, supported this God of love. So I wanted to, I wanted to be a, a fundamentalist and inerrantist and also believe God loves always everybody all the time perfectly. Yeah. But then I would run against up against these Old Testament passages that just painted God in an unloving way. You know, um, my favorite example is the psalmist, when the psalmist thinks that God wants them to bash babies' heads against the rocks. So I remember as a young person thinking, okay, well, maybe if maybe in some strange way that's loving from, from God's perspective. I'd kind of squint at those difficult passages and say, well, who am I to question the God of love? It really must be okay sometimes for, for us to kill babies because that's what God wants. Um, I no longer think that. I'm willing to say that sometimes the biblical writers just got things wrong. And that was a way for me to get past the inerrancy problem that, as I re later realized, the vast majority of theologians in Christian history have not thought that the Bible is perfectly inerrant. The second one uh, has to do with God's power. Like, I didn't want to think that God caused evil. I don't think I ever really thought that, even as a young kid. But I was in the group that said my, God might allow it sometimes. And... Um, and the reason I wanted to go that direction, like most people I think who do go that direction, is I wanted to retain a certain view of God's power that would say, you know, God can, can 
kind of rescue us in the worst of situations. So God might allow bad things, but because of some plan and we can, we've got real, you know, um, we can be confident that God somehow is in control despite the crap in the world. I eventually got past that one by realizing that loving people just don't allow evil that they could stop. And that's the way it is in the world we live in. And we should think that's the same with God as well. The third and probably final big one was the eschatological one. That is, uh, you know, what kind of hope do I have? Does, how, is there any kind of guarantee that God will make sure everything works out right at the end? Because who doesn't want to have, you know, that kind of hope? Um, and it took me a while to work through that one, eventually coming to believe that uh, God is the source of our hope, that there is the real possibility of the complete redemption of all things, but there's not the kind of guarantee that I might have wanted. And I had to sacrifice that guarantee in order to make sense of not only evil in the world, but also genuine freedom in life and, and um, the idea that our lives are significant and that life really matters. Because if God guarantees some kind of afterlife, it's hard to imagine that my my life and my choices make a difference. So real quick response with or three kind of responses, I guess, to your good question. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, I think sometimes um, discussions around theology can um, forget about the person that put the thought <laughs> into them. Yes. And, uh, and something that is always important to me and, and Josh, I know too, but um, I, I think something that's always important to me is, uh, knowing the person that we're talking to a little bit better. And so I, I th thanks for your honesty and your, uh, your willingness to be uh, slightly transparent in your answer. Yeah, um, my pleasure. So here's our first listener question. Uh, it's from a, a guy named Michael. Um, his question is, I am someone who thinks a lot about a, a lot of the quote results of process relational thought are attractive but I find myself unable to accept the underlying metaphysics underpinnings. In particular, I do not understand why process thinkers believe substance theory to be false. How can processes be the basis of a metaphysical system? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, there are some people who basically accept my proposals that I've been talking about the last hour or so, but reject process metaphysics. Um, and they do for a variety of reasons. I don't try to convince those people otherwise. That's fine with me. But uh, um, let me just, to respond to this question, try to give a positive case for process metaphysics, okay? Um, in the philosophical debate, sometimes there's a contrast between what this questioner called a substance-based reality or substance-based view of existence and an event or process-based view of existence. The problem with the substance-based, at least Aristotelian and other kinds of philosophies, is that it doesn't seem to account for genuine awareness or experience or mentality. And every single one of us are experiencers. We have mentality, we're aware of our world. In fact, we may not be consciously aware of everything, but we have even degrees of consciousness. And then that's the kind of stuff we really know best about ourselves in the world that we have, that we're experiencing beings. 
But if substance-based ontology or substance metaphysics is true, that all of reality is based of substances, and if substances don't have experience, don't have mentality, then we have to deny what we know best, that we are experiencing beings. What process thought does is says, what happens if we take experience as fundamental and then apply it not just to other humans, not just to our dogs and cats, maybe they're experiencers too, and dolphins and elephants, but also rabbits and rats. What about uh, cells, amoeba? What about even the smallest units of reality? Maybe they have some tiny, tiny, tiny degree of experience too. So process metaphysics tries to take the philosophy of uh, existence that is based on experience and apply it to all of reality. And when it does, I think it uh, overcomes a lot of philosophical obstacles that are left in place from what we call a substance of metaphysics. Kind of nerdy there again, but trying to do the best to respond to that good question. <laughs> right on time. Well, thanks. Thanks for responding to that. And, and Michael, hopefully uh, you find that answer helpful. Um, but if not, uh, hit up Tom. I'm sure he'll be happy to talk with you. I mean, I just spoke for you, Tom, so I apologize, but I find you to be <laughs> a very, a, a very nice and, and willing person. So yes, um, I'm willing to engage. Awesome. Sweet. Well, so there you go, Michael. And one more question we have for you, and this comes uh, from a listener of ours named Dave. Uh, Dave is, is super cool. He's actually somebody that I know fairly well. Um, I, he is my uncle. I married uh, Noel and he is Noel's uncle. So I'm, he's my like married uncle. I don't know how that works, but he's my uncle. <laughs> and so Dave listens to the podcast and uh, he loves philosophy. And so he has uh, an interesting question. It's kind of long. So I'm going to read it to you and then you can do with it uh, what you will. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So from Dave, quote, I have a complex question. I find your argument and conclusion unconvincing. Have you encountered this objection? And if so, what is your response to it? I understand the principle of requiring assistance slash permission to accomplish things in the world and agree it is morally valid objection to certain forms of, quote, miracle. I don't think it is act actually constraining of an omniscient deity, however. Here are the reasons. One, for rational agents, such as humans or angels, all of us are morally complex. We are neither uh, mononically good nor bad. Angels were uh, temptable, per Dante at least. As mixes of both good and bad, we have the potential always of conversion and redemption. If a message gets through to us, but an omniscient deity should know exactly how to construct a unique and explicit message that could get through to each of us. There's no reason, even for a God who can't, for that God not to harness full cooperation by persuading the free will of human agents to cooperate. Number two, for other non-rational uh, life, there can be no clear permission slash cooperation as they will never meet the criteria for informed choice. But the principle of moral non-monotonism applies as does the ability to persuade through non-rational means. Love is felt by all life and can bring willing oh my goodness, collaboration. Three, for inert matter, there's no issue whatsoever or moral oppression through making choices for it 
uh, for it. There is no agent whose will would be uh, being subverted. A God who can't should it should have no reason not to create, destroy, move small bits of matter to achieve whatever God wishes to achieve. Even more, modern cosmology postulates that the creation of the entire universe was a zero energy event, i.e. even creating a universe takes no power. All it takes is sufficient knowledge to manipulate the logic of the mathematics of matter in the right way. A God who can't can know with no net power and no moral uh, computations basically do whatever it wishes with the local or global physics of our universe. Therefore, neither intelligent agents nor rational life nor inert matter provide any effective constraints on what outcomes a God who can't can accomplish. Your moral constraints just limit some of the methods of getting there, but basically all miracles are accomplishable while operating within your moral constraint. This appears to leave the existence of evil unexplained by your thinking. Whew. That was a long question. Uh, in all full transparency, I sent it to you, Tom, uh, a couple of days ago <laughs> because I didn't want it to bank on me reading it to you uh, live. So what are, what are some of your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, and obviously this person has uh, thought through some things carefully. Um, I think this person has some assumptions that I don't share. So what I'm going to try to do is give a fairly brief response. It probably won't be fully satisfying to him, but to point out um, where my vision would differ from where I think he thinks my vision ought to go. Okay, great. So on the first one, um, I don't think an omniscient God, and here I think the God of omniscience that I affirm knows everything that is possible, everything that's actual, but can't know with absolute certainty everything that's possible will become actual. I don't think that God can, just because that God can know all things that are possible, that that God can know exactly what it's going to take to convince creatures um, to do what's right. Just knowing things doesn't mean that you are controlling others. Um, I don't have omniscience, so it's hard for me to give a, a good analogy here, but even <laughs> knowing my children well doesn't mean that I can somehow set everything up in their lives so that they do exactly what they want, what I want them to do. They still have free will and free choices to do otherwise. And uh, just being um, perfectly, uh, just being omniscient, I don't think uh, makes it possible for God to control us either. Um, I was writing notes as you were talking here, and for number two, um, I forgot exactly what he was saying here. So um, um, I think I'll just combine the last two. Okay. Um, one of the assumptions I, he brings to the table is that there is something like inert matter. Uh, a philosopher sometimes called this vacuous actualities. That's also the word or the phrase that's used to talk about substances, like I mentioned in the earlier answer. So the, the claim here by Dave is that there are no agents amongst these uh, inert matter. And therefore, since there are no agents, uh, God, even though God wouldn't be like up against something that would be opposing God, and even a God with no power, I think he puts zero energy, um, would be able to do whatever God wants. 
Well, my metaphysical starting point is there no such thing as inert matter. There's no such thing as vacuous actualities that even at the beginning of our universe, 13 point, roughly 13.7 billion years ago, that even there, there's energy. And I think most scientists are going to agree with that, that, that there's energy present at the beginning. Now, can God control that energy? Well, I don't think God can, given my assumptions about love, etc. Um, so even at the beginning of our universe, or after the universe gets going, even at the uh, inanimate levels of existence amongst the quarks, we might say, God is present and active, but can't control because there are factors, forces, and some small degree of agency even at that level. So I'll build on things like from quantum um, physics that talk about indeterminacy at the quantum level by saying that that indeterminacy is there not because there's just random accidents amongst vacuous actualities, but there are real uh, matters of spontaneity at that level that even a loving God can't control or manipulate to use his words. Um, so good questions. I think they assume a view of metaphysics that I don't assume. I propose a different view of metaphysics because I think that view overall answers the bigger questions we have about life and fits re really nicely with our theological questions. So that's my best shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate it, Tom. Thank you so much for, uh, for being willing to, uh, to interact with that question. I know uh, it, Dave will greatly appreciate it. Um, you know, him and I have, have great conversations all the time. And sometimes there are questions that he asks that are just honestly out of my league. <laughs> yeah. and so I'm, I'm glad that I could uh, push them off to you. <laughs> so yeah, well, you can pass along, pass along my email to Dave and uh, well, I'll continue the conversation. Oh, wonderful. I'm, I'm sure he would love that. Great. So I guess the only other question we have left, Tom, is um, is there anything is there anything new that you're working on currently? And then, if so, like where can people find info on that? And then, I guess also as a like a tag to that, where can people find you? Um, any resources you want to point people to? So a lot of little pieces there. But what's going on in the life of Tom that people should know about? Where can they find you? Thanks for asking. Um, I think I I can't remember if I've been on your show since I began directing a doctoral program and open in relational theology. So uh, let me start with that. I'm now working with Northwind Theological Seminary and a fully online doctoral program and um, working with about so 12 or 13 students at the moment uh, doing reading deep texts and pursuing big questions. Um, we've mentioned that this uh, new book came out called Questions and Answers for God Can't. That's a follow-up book for my uh, follow-up to my God Can't book, and we've obviously been working through that in the last uh, little bit in terms of some of the questions. Um, you know, I don't think I've told anybody this, but so you guys will be the first. I am turning now to write uh, a new book on, well, to be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure where it's going to go. Um, I am in this particular writing working with a different writing process and I don't have my big ideas 
and my structure of this book put together. So just talking a little bit about the writing process. I'm at a stage in which I'm taking lots of notes, writing sections, um, beginning the work to write a big book on love. I don't, you know, I've, I always write on love, but I always, I need to write kind of a magnum opus. And that's what I'm trying to work on at the moment. Awesome. So that's some of the stuff. Sweet. And for those of you that don't follow Tom on Instagram, um, Tom posts some of the coolest and like really like legitimately well done nature photographs. Oh, um, thanks, Marty. <laughs> I, whenever I come across either one of those, like on Instagram or Facebook, uh, it's always like, man, like I want to be in that picture. <laughs> like, I want to be in that place. Uh, and so, yeah, like if you if you like uh, those types of things, uh, Tom's a cool person to follow on social media. Like if not for any other reason, if I mean if you're like all this other stuff, like, I don't need, I don't know about that, but I love nature. <laughs> like, like Tom would be good to follow. And then you'd probably wind up just jumping on board anyway. <laughs> so uh, I've always appreciated that about your social media. So. Thanks, Marty. I try to spend uh, time in nature, um, not only for my artistic endeavors and my phot photography, but also it's good for me emotionally and spiritually to, to get away. Yeah, it's so good. And I, <laughs> I think perhaps maybe too, like, you know, for those of you who uh, really love uh, nature and photography, then maybe Tom's photography could be a ploy for you into the realm of open and relational theology. I think. <laughs> so try that on for size. <laughs> Feel the lure. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Well, Tom, this has been uh, so good. I'm excited to to hear about the the book that you're working on, I know whenever that uh, drops, um, I'll be one of the first people to, to pick it up. And uh, hopefully you, you can become our, our first ever fourth time guest since you've, broken, you've broken all the other records already. So might as well become the fourth one, you know. It, what's the hockey term for fourth? I, I, I know hat Ooh. trick for three. Is there one for four? Out of it, out of his mind. <laughs> oh, kid. Yeah, so kid, he's, he's playing out of his mind, kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I can't, yeah, I, I can't, like, I think Marty's answer is sufficient, but also I know, uh, Tom, maybe you don't know this about me, but I, I play ice hockey and um, I play in an adult league called D League, which is basically for people who suck. And um, <laughs> I love it. It's so much fun, but we have this thing called fourth period. So in hockey, there's three periods. Fourth right. period is after the game when we go into the parking lot and we share a beer together with our team and the team that we played against. Nice. Um, yeah. So fourth period, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, do you guys do the beer like after you've already all driven home and then you zoom each other, like you FaceTime each other or something or like, wow, Marty, you're going to put mean, me on the spot like that. We, <laughs> we are responsible partakers in alcohol. <laughs> we have a beer or two in the parking lot and then drive home safely, not under the influence. We're just going to, here's what, here's what we'll do. We'll just tell everyone that really the beer that jo the only beer that Josh ever drinks is O'Doul's non-alcoholic beer. Um, oh, man. And so that's what he has. And so Josh is safe uh, in the driving realm. 
<laughs> Whether or not that's true or not, we'll leave up to them. It's definitely true, Marty. I'm a responsible human being. <laughs> I don't know why you gotta at me like that. <laughs> you, I'm dude. gonna send. I'm gonna. I'm gonna find one of uh, my uh, Christian friends or non-Christian friends who don't share my uh, my uh, convictions of non-violence, and I'm gonna send them to come fight you. Or. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, we sh- we should digress though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Tom, again, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for for hanging out with us. It's uh, always a pleasure, and I look forward to uh, you know your continued work, and um, look forward to continuing our friendship. Yeah, I always enjoy talking with you two guys. Thanks, Tom. Glad right. to have you. And as always, uh, go Caps. Go Blackhawks and uh, good go you too in Bono. <laughs> <laughs> Peace and love, guys. Uh-huh.